1888 Podcast Network. I'm John Barrett Ingalls, and this is The How, The Why. Presented by 1888. Every week we connect with artists, authors, and innovators in the world of publishing and literature to discuss their creative process and creative purpose and explore the evolution of the industry. 1888 serves as a regional catalyst for the preservation, presentation, and promotion of cultural heritage and literary arts. Let's get connected. This episode was recorded live at 1888 Center by Bruce Sessions Live. This is the How the Why Live, and uh, my name is John Barrett Ingalls, uh, and today we are connected with Sarah Sayedi, uh, author of multiple books, but most recently uh, Americanized, I usually have it in my hand, uh, Rebel Without a Green Card, and The Lost Kids, which is the second book in your uh, series following Never Ever, and you're also a writer for iZombie as well. Yeah. Uh, so but just you never stop writing. <laughs> Can't stop, won't stop. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would love to talk about uh, how writing started in your life. I know with Americanized, you do... Uh, for, come on, brain. You <laughs> showcase a lot of your journal entries. Mm-hmm. Um so as a young person, as a teenager, you were documenting your life. Uh, and I know I read on your website, too, that you wrote stories at a young age as well. But when did you discover that this was something that you wanted to do and pursue? Sure. Um, well, I was always an avid reader growing up, and I was always a storyteller even before I really knew how to write. Um, I don't think I really realized that I could do it as a career until I was an adult. Um, When I was nine years old, I have a memory of telling people I wanted to be a screenplay writer, and I don't think I actually knew what that necessarily meant at the time. Um, But it wasn't until I uh, got into college, I studied film and mass communications, and Um, I had some experience in production, and I remember thinking that it was really chaotic and really stressful, and that maybe um, writing was more my speed, because it was something that you could do on your own by yourself, and then kind of hand it over and let everyone else do the really tricky part. Um, So that's when I started exploring doing um, screenwriting as a career. And then as I was an aspiring writer, um, I got my start as an executive at ABC Daytime for a period of time working in soap operas. And those. Who starts as an executive? <laughs> like, I've never heard of it. Well, I started off at the executive level. <laughs> well, I started off as an assistant, so I shouldn't misrepresent myself. I did have to work my way up, but um, I uh, went, to the col- went to college in the Bay Area and then I moved out to New York City and. Uh, had a really hard time finding a job and ended up getting a job as an assistant at ABC and then um, was never really like a huge soap opera fan. I watched some soaps growing up, um, but it sort of was just the career that I had in New York City to pay the bills. Mm -hmm. And then what ended up happening is they moved me out to Los Angeles and promoted me to be the creative exec on General Hospital. So at that point, I came to LA and I started panicking a little bit because it felt like, oh, no, no, I'm doing this as a career. This is my career path now. I'm going to be an executive. Like I'm going to work my way up the corporate ladder. And 
the good part about it was that I did realize once I lived in LA that that was the best city to be in as far as trying to be a film or TV writer. So I really took advantage of some of the freedom that I had as an executive and oftentimes closed my door at 4 p.m. of my office and just started working on my own stuff, like sneaking out and taking meetings. Kind of felt like I was leading this double life for a while. And then I think, too, just, just realizing that features were really hard to break into, so that shifted my focus to TV, also feeling like TV was more of a writer's medium than working in film. Um, and then as far as the book writing went, that kind of came out of a period of unemployment. Um, it was a period of time where I had been working on a television show that got abruptly canceled, and then I think it was another year or two before I got my next job. I had you know, quit uh, my job as an executive to pursue writing full-time, and Never Ever, which is a sort of, we, we called it Peter Pan meets Gossip Girl when we took it out to sell it. It started as a television series idea, and my agents at the time really discouraged me from pitching it as a TV show because they felt like it was too expensive and there aren't a lot of networks out there for and teens. And this was pre-Once Upon a Time yeah. where people were actually making shows. Just exactly. Like, yeah. It was pre-Pan. It was pre-Once Upon a Time. Um, and so somebody actually recommended that I try writing it as a book instead, as a young adult novel. And I found that it was a really great thing to do between jobs because it gave me focus, it gave me something to work on, um, and it also felt like it was something that I could do on my own. I didn't have to rely on someone to hire me on their television show. Um, and so it was a year of just kind of, came out of a place of desperation, honestly. Um, and I ended up writing Never Ever as a full manuscript. And then once that sold, it sort of felt like books were something that I could always do between TV jobs. Did you know it was going to be uh, like a part of a series? Yeah, that was always our goal. Um, when, once I got a literary agent, she wanted to try and sell it as a multiple book deal. And um, so we ended it on a cliffhanger because of that. And then once we sold it, um, the editor that I worked with actually said that she didn't want the book to end on a cliffhanger. Um, she said, even though we are going to have a second book, let's let's give the reader some closure. And so I ended up doing a lot of rewriting on the book. And then we finally came to a place where we decided it worked better as a cliffhanger. So I kind of went back to the earlier version. Um, and yeah, and, and then The Lost Kids was... Um, just a continuation of that story. So Never Ever is basically about a bunch of um, teenagers living on an island where no one ages past 17. And the inspiration behind the second book was the sort of notion of if Neverland existed, if Peter Pan existed, and we discovered the island, what would become of those kids? What would we end up doing to them? And so that was what I was really interested in exploring in the second book. And is there a third book in the works? No, no, no third book, which... I have to admit I'm kind of happy about because I do think you you get a little bit of you get a little tired of writing the same characters and I think with the first book because the setting is so isolated on an island it was sort of hard to come up with more story and so I think two books really serviced the narrative well. How did uh, your television writing and that experience help or uh, inspire uh, your process for writing the novels? You know, initially when people read Never Ever, they could tell that it, 
that I had a background in television because I think it is very, um, it's character driven, but it also is very plot driven. And I think the first book feels like a season of television, hence the ending on a cliffhanger. Um, there's a lot of plot twists and um, I, I did approach the book in the way that I would approach breaking and season of TV and I think maybe that was because it originally started as a television idea so when I was initially working on it I was always thinking like if I had to pitch this to a network what would the season arcs be for the characters how would it end where would it go this in the second season um, so yeah it's a, it's it's challenging for me when I'm writing fiction to to turn off the TV writer part of my brain um, and I think too in a writer's room it helps me to have the novelist side of my brain too to always go back to character and what makes sense for the character and the situations that they're in. Now how did writing Americanized differ from your process for writing Never Ever and The Lost Kids? Um, I think Americanized was a lot easier because it, I didn't have to come up with a story. Um, I always knew that I wanted the book to start with the discovery that I was undocumented, which is something I found out when I was 13, and then I wanted it to end with getting my citizenship. Um, and then it was just a matter of figuring out what were the stories in between that would feel relevant, but also relatable and universal to people who don't have the experience of being an immigrant or being undocumented. Um, so in a lot of ways it was, I think the challenge was figuring out which stories were appropriate for me to tell versus which stories belonged to members of my family and were their stories to tell. Um, that definitely took some finessing and it took like asking relatives to read drafts of the book to make sure that they were okay with certain things that were in there. Um, and my editor really, really helped keep me um, focused on stories that felt relevant to the immigrant experience. Um, There's definitely times where I got very sidetracked talking about relationships and crushes on boys, and she was like, this doesn't really, nobody, no one's gonna care about this. So that's funny, because that's the part that I was able to, not the crushes on boys, but like <laughs> the, the, the teenage angst, and yeah. that's the part, like we were talking upstairs, that I was able to relate to and connect to, um, where I was learning more about the immigrant experience. I was relating to the other stories. So it was great that you had the balance of both. Oh, good. Yeah, I wanted to make sure that the stories um, just about general teen angst and low self-esteem or dating and unrequited love were mostly told through the lens of being an immigrant and how those experiences were maybe different from me because my parents were foreign. Um, but yeah, I mean, if I am honest, like so many of my diary entries are more focused on guys that I liked and fights that I had with my friends and less focused on the fact that I was undocumented. Did you feel like, like you said that you had your, your family read portions mm -hmm. that were about them, but do you feel like you outed some of the boys you talk about or some of your friends through the story? Well, I changed everyone's names except for close family members and so far no one has sent me emails or, I talk a lot about the boyfriend that I had through like towards the end of high school mm -hmm. and part of college and I think we're still Facebook friends and I always kind of thought that he would read it and get in touch with me and he hasn't uh, but no one that's mentioned in the book under a fake name has like reached out to me so it's only been out for a couple months so I guess there's still time. Now obviously our world situation mm -hmm. was an influence at what point did you realize I need to tell my story? 
Um, well, while I was writing the book, or when I decided to write the book, it was right around the time of the election, um, and immigration was just such a hot-button issue, and I really felt like, particularly on the Republican side, um, the rhetoric was so hostile, and many of the things that were being said were so outside of my experience of being an immigrant and what it was like to come to this country. Um, so I really felt like I wanted to give give my side of the story, um, and also to talk about being Iranian, because I felt like there was a lot of negativity about being from the Middle East as well. Um, and one of my main objectives with writing the book was that a lot of people, I don't think, know how long it takes to get a green card and how long it can take to become a citizen and how complex the immigration process is in this country. So I wanted to shed some light on that and hopefully make people understand that people that come here that are undocumented are doing everything that they can to try and become permanent residents. It's just not that easy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the timeliness of it is incredible. And even like everything that's happened over the last weekend and then being able to have this conversation. Yeah. Um, it's a very strange time that we're living in. Uh, do you have hopes that this book will do something or reach somebody or is it more of just sharing a story and like illuminating what life could be like or life is like? Yeah, I think my main hope is for any teenagers that are undocumented, they'll find this book and they'll realize that they're not alone and that other people have been through it. Because when I was a teen, I didn't know, aside from my sister, I didn't know anybody else my age that was undocumented. Um, so I hope that it'll give them a little bit of comfort to know that, you know, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and then I think for people, like, I'll, I'll share a story about my mother-in-law specifically, who has much more conservative viewpoints than I do, um, read the book, and I was a little concerned about what her reaction to it would be, and she called me and said that she felt like it was going to be awe-inspiring for people that were going through the same thing, and to know that it's not just about giving hope and comfort to people that are going through it, but for people that have no understanding of what it's like to be an immigrant, um, hopefully teaching them a little bit of empathy. Um, that, that was really like my objective, and the fact that I was able to do that with her was a big deal for me. Did you have, I mean, because you came at such a young age, and you said it wasn't until you were a teenager that mm -hmm. you even realized you were not legal, um, did you have a sense that I am an immigrant and I am different at that young age before realizing what your status was? I think so. I think because um, n not many of my friends were Iranian. I came from a really big family, so I had a lot of relatives and family members nearby. Um, but most of my friends in high school were born in the United States. And um, so I always felt like my family was different. Um, and I, there was things that I felt like that I really loved about my culture that um, and then there's things about my friends that I envied in terms of the way that they were raised. Um, I think finding out that I was undocumented just raised the stakes a lot um, because I didn't at that point when I was 13 I didn't know that you I, I thought anybody could go live in whatever country they wanted to live in. I had no understanding of being illegal Laws, or, yeah, yeah right. needing a green card or what a social security number was. I didn't know any of those things. And so it was my sister who told me we were undocumented. And um, 
I, and she said, too, she didn't sugarcoat it at all. She said, yeah, we could get, like, if they find out about us living here illegally, we could get deported. And that was definitely something that was terrifying because I hadn't lived in Iran since I was two years old. So the idea of being uprooted and having to leave the country was a really scary thought. And um, I think my parents really shielded us from that. And they always told us that everything was going to be okay and that we were eventually going to get our green cards. But it took a really long time. So I was two years old when we came to the States, and I was 20 by the time I got my green card. And then I was 26 when I became a citizen. So it's a long process. What do you think, what is your concept of what it means to be American? Well, that's an easy question. <laughs> um, I think my concept of what it means to be American is to, to be the type of person that's going to, to not be afraid to speak out. Um, I think, you know, we have so many freedoms afforded to us in this country that people don't have other places, and I think that was the main reason that my parents moved us to the States. So I feel like taking any of those rights for granted or not exercising those rights is, um, it's it, it sort of, you know, to we have all of these rights that were afforded, and I feel like we need to exercise them because other people don't have those opportunities in other countries. Um, and I feel like as an immigrant, my parents made a lot of sacrifices so that my sister and I could have a better life. And so I try and take full advantage of that. I think one of the most important things about becoming a citizen was being able to vote. Um, and that's certainly something I never take for granted. Um, and it was right before... Uh, the 2008 election, correct? Yeah, yeah that was the first election I got to vote in was in 2008. For, yeah. yeah, it was a big election, but it was also really hard to not get to vote in the ones before it. Um, so, and I'll share a funny story too. This in the last election, um, when I was voting in the primaries, they told me that I had I had done vote by mail, so they made me fill out a provisional ballot. And so I really wanted to make sure that that wouldn't happen when I voted in the general election and. Um, when I arrived there, I was like a week away from having my baby, so I was very pregnant, and I'm standing in line, and they told me I was vote by mail, and I had to fill out a provisional ballot, and I started arguing with them. I'm like, no, I did everything I could to not have to be in this situation, and I just immediately like burst into tears and started crying, this big pregnant woman, like sobbing because I couldn't, I, and I just didn't feel like it would count the same way, and so it's definitely something that I take very seriously. And I've, I'm making sure that I don't vote by mail ever again. <laughs> I mean, you, we hear a lot, too, of you were talking about honoring the, the challenges and the struggles and the work that your parents did to get you mm -hmm. and your sister and your brother here. Um, and you hear a lot about um, the pressure that is put on the children of immigrants to uh, be, I think you talk about in the book, lawyers and mm -hmm. doctors and engineers. Um, is that a pressure that you experienced in, in college and after? And do you think that that's a drive that has pushed you to be where you are now and as successful as you've been? Well, thank you. Um, a little bit. Um, I was really lucky in that my parents have certain things about them that are very traditional or very stereotypical about Iranian parents, but for the most part, they were always really progressive when we were growing up, and they never made us feel like we had to um, follow a certain career path. Um, they always wanted us to do something that we loved, and they were always very supportive and encouraging of that. I do think at the same time, they wanted us to have a stable income and a steady job. Um, 
but they they knew that I was um, invested in writing and being creative, and so they they always championed that when I was growing up. And then as an adult, they they've been my biggest cheerleaders, honestly, because there's definitely highs and lows in this industry. And like I said, I mean, there's been long periods of unemployment too. So during those periods of time when I uh, when I would a script wouldn't sell or I wouldn't get hired on a job, I feel like they're they're generally my first phone call and they're always very very encouraging. Um, but I always think too that I think what helped is that I did have that job as an executive for most of that period of time when I was trying to write. And if I was waiting tables or doing something else to make ends meet, I'm sure they would have been a little bit more panicked and concerned. Um, and yeah, definitely in terms of my work ethic, I had two parents that still are working extremely hard. Um, and I, I remember as a kid when I realized that not all dad like that dads take Saturdays and Sundays off and moms take Saturdays and Sundays off because um, my dad always works six days a week so I always thought that Sunday was the only day people got off um, so yeah their work ethic has been a huge influence on me um, and I think part of the reason for that is I never wanted to feel like any of the sacrifices that they made for us were in vain um, I was reading in another interview with you and you were talking about uh, raising your your son, who his father is American, mm -hmm. uh, American born American, and uh, how you're challenged, I guess maybe is the right word of like maintaining that that culture uh, as you're you're trying to speak Farsi to yeah. him and uh, and talk a little bit about how important that is to uh, honor your roots and to make sure that that continues down the line as well. Yeah, it's really important to me. Um, it, but it's also challenging because I've lived in the United States since I was two years old. My Farsi is pretty rusty. So just in terms of, um, it, it, it has, I have to make a conscious decision every day to, to speak with him in Farsi or to, um, read him stories in Farsi or I somebody um, recommended to me like anytime you do screen time or let them watch something on YouTube make sure it's something in Farsi because that'll really help um, it's important to me but I think I also recognize the challenges of it too um, and how difficult it is going to be because I think as a kid you become very I, I was at least very resistant to that part of my identity as a child um, my parents would send me to Persian dance classes and I hated doing that. They would make me take Farsi classes on the weekend and I hated doing that. And of course now as an adult I look back on it and I wish that I had taken those things more seriously because I'm so upset that I don't speak Farsi as well as I could have. Um, so I acknowledge the fact that it's not going to be something that he's going to probably be very um, ex yeah, receptive to for sure. Um, but I think it's important to try. I hope that at least I can look back on it and say, at least I tried, at least he um, grew up with some uh, insight into that part of him. I think for me as a kid too, it was a lot easier because we had so much family around us. I had so many aunts and uncles and cousins and so, so much of our social life was w spent with family. So I was constantly surrounded by Iranians, whereas most of my family is in the Bay Area and I live in Los Angeles, so he's not gonna get that exposure either. Um, so I think it's just making a concerted effort on my part to make it a part of his life without him feeling like I'm shoving it down his throat. Sure, yeah. Yeah, my 
daughter's mother is mm-hmm. half Haitian. Mm-hmm. So there is a whole cultural history that I have no yeah. connection to. And, uh, you know, she def- definitely doesn't look like she's part Haitian. And that's a challenge that I have to face, you know, especially as she gets older. Like, how much can I, well, I don't know what I can do, but right. like, how much can I honor this thing that I'm not familiar with? Yeah. And, you know, honor her mom and her heritage. And I think it's important, too, as we're, you know, kind of expanding to become global citizens, to have that connection to our past, but also be open to that homogenization of humanity, of, like, not seeing the differences, but seeing more of the similarities. Definitely. I think, too... I mean, I'm hoping that when I was growing up, I was really, in some ways, embarrassed by the fact that I was different. And I'm hoping for him, he'll he'll embrace that. He'll like it. He'll feel like, oh, this makes me, you know, the, I do have some sort of a culture that's not the same as most people that I'm around. Um, so I'm hoping that maybe he'll, it'll feel cool and trendy by that point. I don't know. But um yeah, I think for me as a kid, I just, I, I wanted to assimilate. Um, and I'm hoping for him, it'll be something that'll intrigue him and something that he'll want to explore further. Is there a thought, and like growing up, did you have the thought of this concept that America is built on immigration? That when we talk about, oh, where, where are you from? Well, well, my family is from, you know, my I'm Irish and Scott, we're, we're I don't think that there's a lot of other places in the world where you're talking about all the different countries that your family's from other than the United States. Yeah, that's so true. And I think I'm lucky that the places that I've lived and grown up have been very culturally diverse. So it's just having the exposure to people from different places. Um, my high school, for instance, was 60% Asian when I was there. Um, and I had a really eye-opening experience a few weeks ago. I went up to the Bay Area and spoke at a couple high schools. And at one of the high schools, there was a... I I spoke to about 200 kids, and I started out by asking them to raise their hands if they weren't born in the United States. And about a third of the hands went up, which I was surprised by. I thought it would be less than that. And then I asked them to raise their hands if their mom or their dad wasn't born in the U.S., and then a grandparent. And almost every single person in the room had their hands up. So I think it just, for me, it was very eye-opening because I realized all of us are impacted by immigration um, and that it it is very much a part of this country and it is a part of what makes this country great. Now as uh, political asylum seekers, when your family mm-hmm. left at a young age, um, is it hard or is there a positive view of what Iran is, is now today? Uh, you know, we're here in the West kind of fed a lot of we were just spoon-fed what to think about Iran without ever having any knowledge yeah. of it. And that's what you grew up with was that spoon-feeding from media, mm-hmm. but then also your your parents and your family. Uh, what is your opinion of or what it means to be Iranian or what Iran is now? Well, I think for me growing up, I never... I think a lot of Americans, and it is because of the way the country is represented in the media are scared of Iran or it's like the scary other. And for me, it never was like, it's never been a country that I've been afraid of or anything like that. Um, I've never felt threatened by Iran. Um, But because growing up so much of what I came to know about my culture was the art and the music and the films and um, the food and 
parts of the culture that I think you just don't hear about as much, which is really a shame. Um, and I think what a lot of people don't know is that, you know, comparatively for the Middle East, Iran is relatively progressive compared to a lot of the other countries. Um, and Tehran in particular, where I was born, is a thriving city. It's um, my, my parents, uh, I lived in New York City for a period of time, and when they came to visit me, they kept saying how much it reminded them of Tehran. So I think that oftentimes we don't have the, that in mind when we're thinking of um, the Middle East. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what it's like to live there. Um, I had a cousin who um, was born in the United States and grew up here and spent a year in Iran not so long ago. And I think one of the things that he told me too was that um, while a lot of the people in the country aren't happy with the way the government is run, um, a lot of the people in the country do like the fact that it's an Islamic Republic. Um, and so I think we have, I always had this attitude of like, oh, it's the government that's forcing this upon the people and the people don't want it, but that's not necessarily the case. Um, and I think that's also a good thing to remember that as far as being an Iranian who's grown up here, I don't know a lot about what it's like to actually live there and the wants and needs of the people who live there. Do you feel any conflict living in a country and being from a country that are at odds with each other? That's always been really strange and uncomfortable and awkward, especially as a teenager. And I know that some of my cousins who are older than me had it a lot tougher because when they first moved to America, it was in the middle of the um, hostage crisis. And so they... Um, you know, they felt a lot of vitriol at school from other students because of it, and that was something that luckily I was too young to experience. Um, it's always been something that's that makes me a little uncomfortable, um, and I think, but more and more, um, I do think that there is an effort to show the other side and to show the great things about the culture, whether it's like Anthony Bourdain going to Iran, you know, little things like that, that as an Iranian, like, when we see that there's something like that on television, like we te we all text each other, we all like remind each other to record it, we all watch it and we get so excited. So we really cling to those little things that I think show people a different perspective of Iran than what we normally get to see. Yeah, I, you posted a, a video and I had watched this and I was going to bring it up mm -hmm. and then I saw that you posted it on your, your Twitter of uh, this, guy who grew up here was off, off of Vox. I yeah. Think. Um, and I think it's Al Jazeera. Is it Al yeah, Jazeera? Yeah. yeah. And uh, he wanted to call himself David growing <laughs> up because he wanted to be American. And then uh, it was really beautiful. And I was so glad to, to see that on, on your post as well, because it reminded me of what I was reading. Um, as you were working on this book and in the time that we're we're in and are in do you find it cathartic to write these stories or was it challenging or was it hard to write them as you're hearing about everything that was happening in the news cycle it was definitely cathartic and it also felt like um i had completed a draft of the book um right before the election and so there was a few things that we had to go in there and change and adjust once donald trump was elected um and we also felt like um my editor actually made the recommendation of because of the way the election went, things felt more fraught and scarier for people that are undocumented. So I made sure to add a section to give advice to people that are currently undocumented um, so that I could give them something concrete instead of just have hope, it'll get better, it got better for me. Um, so yeah, definitely it felt cathartic, but it also felt like it was 
my form of resistance to after the election. It was something that I felt like I could actively do to try and make a difference. Um, you know, I was going to protests and I was donating money and everything like that, but this felt like, um, honestly, like one of the best things we can all do is to share our stories and share our perspectives because I think what's being said a lot in terms of immigration, there's just so many myths and misconceptions out there and I wish that the other side was a little bit louder about telling people what it's really like. Have you received feedback from uh, young people who may have be going through something similar? Have you heard anything or? or uh... Yeah, definitely I think that um, not as much from, you know, I've gone to a couple high schools, but I don't feel like I've had as many conversations with teenagers about the book as I would like to have. Um, although when I, I, I got to go back to my own high school, which was really strange and funny, um, but there was a young girl there who had just moved from Iran a few years ago. Um, so it's been great talking to a lot of kids who are currently like dealing with what I was dealing with as a teenager. Um, and then as far as adults go, m many adults have come to me, either they were undocumented or just being raised by immigrants relating to a lot of the book, or um, having a real emotional reaction to the book because their parents are also immigrants and really relating to my relationship with my mom and dad. Um, so that's been really lovely. And you and I spoke earlier too, and I think um, people who, don't have any experience with being an immigrant or being undocumented really relate to a lot of the teen angst. And um, also there's plenty of 90s nostalgia in the book because I was a teenager in the 90s, so I really wanted that decade to feel like a character in the book as well. Um, so I think that there's a lot of things that people can identify with and relate to because the theme is really just feeling like an outsider and feeling isolated and having a, an identity crisis, and I don't think that you need to be an immigrant to relate totally. to that. Absolutely. Um, and we kind of talked a little bit about it upstairs as well, but what was the, did you know at the beginning, was this something that your, your publisher wanted it to be a book for young adults that was going into it, what the, the goal was? Yeah, it was actually interesting because, um, I had a conversation with my lit agent after never ever to talk about like what I would want to write next. And I had always wanted to write something about being an immigrant, whether it was going to be a work of fiction or a work of nonfiction. Um, and initially we talked about doing it as a young adult novel about a girl who was undocumented. And then she came back to me and said that um, a lot of publishers were looking for more young adult memoirs because there was a gap in the marketplace for them. And so that was when we decided that it would be, um, that it would make more sense to tell the story as a memoir. Um, and I was also really happy about that because I think that for anybody who is undocumented, I think that it's more important to get to read a story of somebody who's actually gone through it than a fictionalized version of that story. Um, and then it was really interesting because she she felt like there was a lot of hunger for young adult memoirs. And then I sold the book on a, as a book proposal. And then when the book proposal went out, many of the people that turned it down said they didn't want a young adult memoir. So it was like, okay, well, I thought everybody wanted a young adult memoir. I it's guess not. What not. I was told, yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, and I think it's it's actually been a little bit. I mean, there's definitely crossover appeal with the book. I think that um, teens will love it, but I do think a lot of adults are going to respond to it as well. Um, but I am learning that most teens are more invested in reading fiction, so I think it is a little bit tougher to get them to read a memoir or to read something that's nonfiction. Um, but so far, the feedback that I've been getting has been really positive, luckily. Now, I'm going to ask, I don't know who's read the book or not, but I definitely want to know 
um, how Kia and Samira are doing? <laughs> um, well, my brother, who um, I call him my anchor baby in the book, um, and an anchor baby is a child that you have in the United States when you're undocumented to anchor you to the country. Um, that's not, he wasn't really an anchor baby. I think he's much younger than my sister and me. He's um, 11 years younger than my sister and eight years younger than me. Um, and I think in talking to my parents and writing about him, I think I realized that that's just how long it took my parents to feel settled in the country before they could have another kid, to feel financially comfortable to do that. Um, but he's 29 now, and he just got engaged. Um, and he lives in San Francisco and works at a startup. And my sister also lives in the Bay Area, and she is married with two kids. And she is also, she worked at Google. She um, just left Twitter a few months ago. So she, they've both always been in sort of a Silicon Valley startup world. That's great. Yeah. Um. So now, is there anything, I know you're on hiatus with iZombie, when does that go back into uh, writing session? We're hoping the show will get renewed, we don't know yet, okay. so we think we'll um, find out in a few weeks whether um, there's going to be another season of it, and if there is, we would probably start up again at the end of May, um, and then, yeah, it's sort of in, there's something called staffing season, when it comes to TV, which is when all the pilots are getting made, um, and w most people start taking meetings with writers in case their show gets picked up so that they can start hiring people right away. So I'm kind of in the middle of that chaos right now. Um, so I'm taking meetings just in case iZombie doesn't come back. I'm hoping it will. Um, but yeah, so um, m next on the horizon is going back to TV and then I'm actually going to be adapting Americanized for television, oh, too. Cool. So I think that that'll be a really interesting experience. To it, It's like my two worlds colliding yeah. in a lot of ways. Um, and then I think it'll also be fun to get to do a semi-fictionalized version of a memoir as well. So that's something I'm excited to see my I don't know, I think it, it's the perfect climate for that to exist. Yeah. With, uh, uh, fresh off the boat and... Uh, um, uh, Aziz's show. Yeah, Master of, Master None. of None. Yeah, yeah. which I loved. Um, there's an episode of that that actually inspired some of Americanized, which is um, it's the second episode of the first season. It's called Parents. Right. And you had the two. Yeah. 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 Oh, it's so good. <laughs> and um, there's there's a whole uh, bit in it where his dad asks him to fix something for him, like some something he's having trouble with, like with technology. And Aziz's character is like, oh, I'll get to it later. Like, I don't have time. And then they just flash back and you see this montage of like all the things that his dad had to go through in his life in order to bring his family to America. And I think in a lot of ways it's supposed to be comical, but I remember being at the gym when I watched it and I just, I burst into tears a lot apparently, but I was so moved by it because it, it just really spoke to me and I really related to that feeling of, um, you know, admiration that I have for my parents, but also that feeling of guilt that I have because I feel like they've done so much for us. Um, so yeah, uh, watching that show made me realize too that there's, um, that people are eager for these kinds of stories right now. It's interesting, you, I'm just thinking now, you, you talk about how much you feel like you, you owe your parents for the work that they did to get you to the United States, to help you become a citizen. And really, like, as a teenager, it's you just going along 
-hmm. And even when you went to get your citizenship, <laughs> it was kind of more of a chore than, yeah. uh, which was kind of when you went to the office. Uh, I don't remember if you mentioned what city it was in, but you had to be dra dragged away and had the argument with your parents about driving. Right. To, everything was a chore. But now that it's over and now that you're here and now that you see how much work went into it, um, do you feel like you have to have a louder voice and, uh, f I don't know if fight is the right word, but for uh, uh, change and understanding and openness for uh, uh, other people who are experiencing similar things that you had to go through? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that was why I really wanted to write the book, too. And in writing the book, I realized that many of my friends never knew that I was undocumented, that it was something that... I had never been very outspoken about when it came to my loved ones and my um, friends and some of my family members. Um, so yeah, that certainly is a part of it. Um, and I think at this, it, it is very timely, unfortunately. Like there are a lot of people that are going through this. Um, if DACA existed when I was a teenager, I would have been a dreamer. And knowing that's, you know, the future of DACA is still in flux and still uncertain, I feel like it's the least I can do to tell my story and to shed light on the experience of what it's like to be an immigrant. What is your, this is a really easy question. I'm going to lob this one. What is your view of how our immigration policy should be? Well, I think, I mean, it's such a complicated process, but I think that we need to help people get naturalized. If we can give people a path to becoming permanent residents or becoming citizens that's not as lengthy and as expensive as the path that my parents had to take. Um, because I think that um, it'll help people contribute more to society, contribute more to the economy. I think it's going to be better for everybody. Um, and I think, too, it's going to take so much of the anxiety away that everyone has to deal with being undocumented. The anxiety that kids have because their parents are undocumented. The anxiety that parents have because they've brought their kids to this country and they their future is uncertain. Um, so I think that there's a lot that we can do to make the path easier. And I, I personally um, feel like family-based migration is really important, and I think that we need to have more of a focus on that. Um, I'm really disappointed that um, this administration doesn't seem to agree, though I'm not surprised, um, because I think we need to keep families together. Um, and I think that um, just in terms of people that are in crisis, people that are coming to this country because their lives are in danger where they are, I think that the United States needs to continue to be a refuge for those people. Well, Sarah, thank you so much thank for you. taking the time to, to chat with me. And thank you, everybody, for being here and listening. Uh, Americanized Rebel Without a Green Card is so phenomenal. Thank you so uh, much. And congratulations on all the success that you have. Thank you. Thanks My for pleasure. having me. Thank you. Thanks, everybody. This has been The How, The Why with John Barrett Ingalls. The show is produced by Kevin Stanick and yours truly, with production assistance by Sarah Becker. The How the Why theme music was composed and performed by Dan Record. Please consider supporting 1888 and our mission. Become an 1888 advocate by purchasing our books, participating in our programs, and pledging today. 
For more information, visit 1888.center. That's 1888.center. I want to remind you all to keep making art. Thank you.